And, and most people are not used to going through a legal process. They're there to tell you their story. They're not there to make distinctions between what's evidence and what's submissions. Issues, you know, those are things which are important to us, but they're not important to the people right. who are trying to just, they want to know whether they're entitled to benefits, yes or no. Hello, and welcome once again to Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall, and I'm the project manager at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And I'm Julie McFarland, the director of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And before we get into the topic of our episode today, I just want to mention again that this season you will see a bit of a revolving door of guest hosts of the In Other News segment that we always have at the end of each episode. And once again today, we're really excited that the wonderful Ali Tajani has yay. agreed yay, uh, to do In Other News for us. Uh, we really appreciate it. And it's nice to hear his voice again. We've missed him. So I'm sure and you'll... warning to anyone who does this as a guest, and by the way, we'd be happy to hear from you, we yeah. might reel you in and make you do it forever, somewhat like <laughs> we're doing with Ali. Just That's saying. right. <laughs> he can't escape us now. It's just <laughs> never ending. So on to the main topic for today's episode. Over the last nine months or so, NSRLP has been working with several different administrative tribunals. And in case you're not aware, uh, tribunals are specialized panels of experts who function a lot like courts in making decisions on a whole different range of issues for Canadians. So things from human rights to immigration issues to social security benefits. And we've been working with these tribunals to assist them in adapting their systems and skills to support the increased volume of self-represented litigants that they're seeing, much like every other type of court across the country. So today we're featuring a conversation that Julie had with two leaders at two different federal tribunals, meaning that these are tribunals that see people across the country. And she's spoken to them about what they see as the challenges that their tribunals need to meet and how they can improve access to justice, especially for self-represented litigants. So the two people that I'm talking to today are folks that we've been working with um, and enjoying working with. The first is Suzanne Gilbert, who's the deputy chair of the Immigration Appeal Division of the Immigration and Refugee Board of Canada. So the Immigration Appeal Division is the final appeal from Immigration Review Board decisions. And these, these are very consequential decisions for people about family sponsorship, deportation, perhaps refugee status. Suzanne has a long history of working on social justice issues in relation to refugees, but also in relation to children and parents. She was earlier a chair at the Ontario Social Justice Tribunal, working with the Child and Family Services Review Board and the Custody Review Board. And her colleague, Paul Atterman, uh, is the chair of the Social Security Tribunal, another as Dana has said, federal tribunal hearing decisions from people across Canada. Uh, and these are appeals from decisions on unemployment insurance, Canada Pension Plan, and the Old Age Security Act. Again, very important decisions, very consequential decisions for the applicants and 
many of these folks are self-represented litigants. So Paul's background is as a lawyer with extensive admin justice experience in human rights, immigration and refugee matters. He and Suzanne have actually worked together in the past and workers' compensation. Um, he's also on the board of directors for the Council of Canadian Administrative Tribunals, where I know there is a real focus and a real interest on trying to improve all the tribunal systems for self-represented litigants. And he's also involved with Access to Justice BC, um, working in particular on a network of justice se sector organizations uh, that are dedicated to improving access to justice in British Columbia. So two very long time public servants uh, with a lot of experience uh, talking about what it means to try to manage a tribunal where so many people are coming forward without legal counsel. So let me ask you both to begin with, and first of all, you know, so many thanks for doing this because I know this is going to be meaningful for people, in particular people who have come self-represented to administrative tribunals, but also to others as well. We know it's not a secret that there are very high numbers now of people coming to administrative tribunals without legal representation. The numbers vary, of course, a little bit, but they're in the region of 70% where we know we have data. And in each of the cases of the tribunals that you head up, you have been working with the National Self-Represented Litigants Project over the past year to try to examine what the experience is like for people who come without representation and try to make it a more fair and meaningful experience while they're navigating on their own. Could you maybe each begin, and maybe I'll ask Paul you to go first, by describing both the particular and the more general challenges you have seen and heard from self-represented people in your tribunal. Paul, if you want to begin by talking about the Social Security Tribunal, that would be great. Sure. The tribunal uh, really, what it does is it administers laws which are Canada's federal social safety net. So employment insurance, Canada pension plan, and old age security. And th there's a big problem with Canada's social safety net uh, because it was built for the 20th century, not for 2020. And so they're very complicated programs. They're, the statutes themselves are a nightmare. They're very legalistic, very difficult for lawyers to understand, yeah. let alone normal people. Yep. And there's no political mileage. It's a difficult, it's a challenging thing to do. We, we happen to be seeing movement right now, but it's a pandemic which has actually right. triggered that movement. Yes. But for the pandemic, I mean, it's it's a complicated and potentially very contentious area for politicians to get into. So the the effect of that has been that these are this is law which has been devised in the '60s, or sometimes earlier than that, and there's little band aids put on it here and there, tweaks and mm. changes. It just makes it more complicated. So you have that on the one hand, and then who uses the system? Well, the people who use the system are ordinary Canadians. In our case, there's a very high proportion of people who are unrepresented. It's, mm. it's, it's well over 70%. The average literacy level in Canada is around a grade eight. 
reading level. So these are people who are not necessarily with, you know, post-secondary education. Right. They're, a lot of the time it's people with secondary education, sometimes even less than that, and they're doing it themselves. And what we deal with are people in a very precarious financial situation. The, the experience that they have, because these are massive programs, is that they end up, first of all, dealing with a bureaucracy. And it's a bureaucracy which doesn't have a lot of human contact. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, it's, it's applying for things online, uh, getting maybe phone calls, but a lot of communication electronically or in writing, not a lot of contact with people. Mm -hmm. So when they get to the tribunal, they, they, they're often very confused. They're frustrated by the experience of not having so dealt far. with yeah. human beings. And there's a lot of anger. What you overlay on that, all of that, is a legal process, which is our process. And, and most people are not used to going through a legal process. They're there to tell you their story. They're not there to make distinctions between what's evidence and what's submissions. Issues, you know, those are things which are important to us, but they're not important to the people right. who are trying to just, they want to know whether they're entitled to benefits, yes or no. So Suzanne, turning this to you, you know, you similarly have um, high numbers of self-represented people. Similarly, they are also in vulnerable situations, although somewhat different ones than the ones mm -hmm. that, that Paul is describing. Um, do you want to react to what Paul said? And, and, you know, is there anything in addition you would say is, is really challenging for the people you see? And we're dealing with issue related to immigration. So, and let's say mainly sponsorship. So I, we do not have the same clientele as Paul has in his tribunal. We have permanent resident who wants to have their spouse come from abroad to come to Canada. And so there's a lot of uh, reunification of the family. That's the, the concept. So as, uh, as Paul said, you know, immigration is a complex area of law, it is. Uh, if you try to read the act, it, it looks like a, a tax law. It's not very clear. And we have around, I would say, 35% at the IAD uh, of people who are self-rep. So just to go backwards, my experience when I arrived at the, at the IAD uh, was that I had been for 10 years chair of a board in Ontario dealing with children and family, dealing with children aid society. They were all self-rep. And I knew how complex and difficult it was for people self-rep to go through a, a system like that. So I, I thought that when I came at the IED that there would be not so much, so much difference between them and the people we had at the IED. So one day I go and, and look at a, one part of the process, uh, assist, uh, I'm attending part of the process where uh, some staff are meeting with self -rep. They have a discussion with them, prepare them for their hearing. And I thought, this is going very fast. So a was, lot of information being given uh, very quickly, yeah? Over, overloaded of mm -hmm. information. And, and at the same time, this group of people is on the phone with, with the self-rep trying to guide them. 
And the members are saying to me, well, there's challenges when they come, they are not necessarily prepared. The members being the adjudicators that they yeah. appeared before, yeah. Yes, so I said, I, I just need to make sure that the service we're providing to self-rep is adequate and would give them a chance to get a fair hearing. So it's a difficult experience because it's complicated. You've described both of you a very complicated system, a system that people with years of legal training still find very challenging. Is it hopeless? I mean, is there any way that it's possible to build a process that we know, you know, we have to accept the reality that there is, there is a stubbornly large number of folks out there who are not going to be able to afford representation and will be coming alone. Can we build a process that works for them? I mean, we've, we've, we've kind of embraced a lot of online resources in the last five years or so across the legal sector. And they have no doubt made things somewhat easier for people who don't have lawyers because they can read you know, information that's posted online and they can get more background, more context. For me, at least, there's something which is more profound at, at play than technology. And it's a notion which I, I see starting to take hold now, but it, it's pretty recent, really, in my experience. I've been around the justice system for 30 years. And it's a notion of justice as a service. Y you don't need fancy technology to be able to put that concept into practice. It's the idea that this is a system which doesn't belong to the decision makers and the lawyers. Mm -hmm. It belongs to the people who are being affected by it. So you have to make it work for them as citizens. It's their right in a democracy to be able to participate in their own cases in a meaningful way. Yeah. And so, you know, one of the things that we do, we're working on training our, our members, uh, you know, one of the modules that we're working on for training our new decision makers. It's basically called, it's not about you. Uh, it's not about the decision makers. And it's to get this notion forward. You know, you can then apply that concept, uh, you know, to technological applications, if you happen to have the money to fund those. And there's, as you said, you know, this is, it is important. The technology is important because we we're living in a in an age now where there's a much greater expectation on the part of people that they can do things themselves. Mm -hmm. And technology has been an enabler Absolutely. of that. Absolutely. And some people, some people want to do it themselves and they don't necessarily want help, but there's a, there's a bit of a gap between wanting to do it yourself and being able to do it yourself because you're dealing with a very complicated system. Right, and so I would actually just say as well, that the research that we have and others have also suggests that by far the vast majority of people do want help. It's just the kind of help that they want that we haven't quite figured out what that help should be yet. So yeah. you know, in terms of giving people, as you say, that, that meaningful experience as a citizen of accessing justice, I mean, does this mean we have to burn this whole complex system down and start again? Or is there a, an authentic way that we can get people engaged and understand enough about how the system works? Do you think that's possible? We have this notion of a navigator. You know, like a, a traditional approach of a tribunal is we pick up the phone if you call us. You know, we answer a question if you ask it to us. And that's all the help that we'll give you. 
in other words, we're, you know, the traditional approach is to be purely responsive. And we say this doesn't work for the people that we're dealing with. Right. So with a navigator, what we do, these are people who work in our registry. Their job is to pick up the phone and call the appellant before the appellant calls them. And they introduce themselves and they say, hi, um, I'm going to be with you if you want throughout mm -hmm. your process. So that, you know, I, I'm not here to be your lawyer. I'm not your lawyer, but I'm here to explain the process to you. Right. And um, you can call me at any time. In other words, we attach that person to that appellant, that navigator to that appellant. For the duration. So that there's a trust right. relationship right. which actually builds right. up. And this relates Paul, to your idea that this is a service. I just want to flip this over to Suzanne because I know yeah. that the role of the early resolution officers is a little like this too. You know, Paul has talked about, you know, we need more than just fancy technology. We need a kind of cultural change in thinking about what this service is for and whose service it is. So how are you addressing that, would you say, Suzanne, at the Immigration Appeal Division? Well, we, uh, I would like to, answer your question when you say, is it hopeless? <laughs> I, I, I just hope not. <laughs> yes, I hope not too. Yeah. And that's think, why we're doing this, right? Yes, that's it. So we need to educate ourselves. Mm -hmm. And like Paul said, it's a, it's a switch, you know, uh, it's not about us. It's about the people we're, yeah. we're serving. Yeah. And this pompous justice system is, is, you know, in an administrative tribunal, it has to be viewed and, and uh, exercised as jurisdiction differently. We need to be more open and there to, to serve people who are coming to us. I believe people before the IAD <clears throat> need help. They need help to, uh, to go through the system. We have the, not the equivalent of a navigator, but kind of, which is the early resolution office, yes. doing a lot of work upfront and they, uh, they contact people and they try to evaluate if the file goes to an ADR or should go to a hearing. And um, uh, we are looking at improving the service we can offer to guide people. Our staff is compassionate and interested in supporting people. So um, I think we're making progress. Yeah. It's not perfect. The, uh, the online world and technology, well, I have mixed feeling about that. I think people all learn differently. I think that, uh, uh, I don't know if it depends on age, on experience. First of all, you need to be able to access the technology. You need to be able to use it. You need uh, technology, you know, some, uh, some website. You can only read what is there, so you need to adapt there. I learn by hearing things. Mm. So I prefer to be on the phone with someone who right. will explain me something and I will take notes. Right. You both reacted earlier on when I asked you, you know, is it hopeless? Because, you know, in many ways, I think people listening to the first part of what you both said about the complexity of the system and then thinking of, you know, the person who's alone perhaps without good literacy skills, perhaps with, without good language skills or vulnerable in some other way, you know, it does feel a little hopeless, but you were both kind of like, no, we, we have to make this work. This is my job. And I know both of you are enormously committed mm -hmm. to access to justice and making this a better experience for people. So could you each say, you know, what would be your reasonable goals? 
to improve the service that your tribunal can offer to, to self-represented litigants within the next year? What would be, you know, your most important one-year goals? First of all, it's to try to put in place the recommendation of your report. So that's <laughs> my first goal. Well, that would be great. That would <laughs> for, be great. The, for the year we coming. We did see a lot of consistent uh, Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, it, and it was, you know, I think that it's important to uh, get this assessment of what you do by a, uh, an outside an outsider with experience because we're not the best judge necessarily to assess if we're doing the right thing but yeah. uh, my goal is to uh, is to i think mainly to look at the communication online and yeah. the material that people can access right so it makes sense so I think it's mainly my goal for this year yeah. Uh, yeah. to adapt, I would say bundle of services, but to adapt it to every possible situation. Right. Material yeah. that's visual, material that's auditory, material that maybe requires more, uh, you know, so. reading comprehension, um, because you're yeah. trying to yeah. cover a lot of different bases here. I wouldn't want to have someone dealing with self-rep or with anyone who doesn't have a certain level of compassion for the problem people mm -hmm. have. Mm -hmm. That wouldn't fall well, it wouldn't work well with me. Paul, what are your social security tribunal goals for the next year? I know that you've just started your navigator program and you're gonna be obviously looking to see how well that's gonna make a difference. I think the thing which I wanna be able to do, let's say a year from now, is to be able to answer, you know, answer that question, not just with my impressions, but with a, a big, volume of data which right. backs it up yeah and you know to me what what really matters is is not what i aspire to but it's 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 whether there's sort of objective indicators about whether we're Did getting the most results yeah yeah so the two things that we're doing is we're we're conducting a formal evaluation of the navigator program using uh, hard criteria to figure out whether or not we're doing what we hope we're doing and the other project that we're doing that on is, is in plain language, in um, writing decisions, making sure that all the communications that we um, have with appellants, forms and letters and stuff like that, are written in language that they have a better chance of understanding. So we want to evaluate that too. And again, it's not just aspirational, it's being able to say, no, we did a study and it's a rigorous study and here's the results of it. And if, if they tell us that we need to do more, then we have to do more. But it's data which matters. I think that's the thing which is really going to improve the justice system. Well, that, of course, as an empirical researcher is music to my ears. And, uh, you know, you are both of you, I know, very committed to that. And hopefully Paul will also, by the time we release this, podcast will also have been able to do some work with the SST and certainly appreciate the opportunities. So I suppose, you know, the best place for me to end this is to say maybe we should reconvene in a year and see what more we know, because I think that what's very clear from people listening to you today is that you have some very, you know, high aspirations here and you are not um, naive about how difficult achieving some of this might be with a very large, you know, self-represented community. But thank you so much for the work that you're doing. And uh, you. let's get back to it. All right. Thank you. Thank you very much. 
so I have to admit that uh, the first thing that stood out to me from this great conversation you had with Paul and Suzanne was that Paul very early on referred to people who aren't lawyers as normal people. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, a sentiment like that, that many of us share. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. And I think it, it highlighted his, I think, you know, his sense of humor, but also his kind of self-awareness and recognition of just how difficult it is for quote unquote normal people to navigate these worlds. And he went on to talk about the fact that he's aware that this is a massive bureaucracy and people are entering it with minimal human contact. So self-reps are trying to navigate this system. They're not really talking to a human being on the other end of the phone or a lot whatever of the time. process. Yeah. yeah. Until, and so they get very confused and they get very frustrated. And then finally they end up at the tribunal at their hearing and they're just kind of, it's, a, it's too much. It's a lot. They're confused. They're frustrated. And at the end of the day, as he said, all they really want is to tell their story and to know yes or no, will they get benefits? And they're navigating this intense process and they're confused and it's just far from ideal. Yeah, I mean, it's so it's so incredibly familiar, isn't it, Dana? Yeah. And Paul really put his finger on this, as, as did Suzanne, that so often what overwhelms people is the procedural complexity, you know, and I think we'll, we'll talk about that in a moment. And just being in a kind of an alien environment, you know, doing something in a way that they have never done it before, which to, I don't want to refer to lawyers by default as abnormal, but let's just say <laughs> that lawyers might feel more comfortable with, whereas somebody coming to the first time to a hearing or even just going through the procedures um, will often feel, you know, very, um, very at a loss. There is some investment being made at the IAD and uh, NSRLP has been part of making some of these recommendations for training for people to have what are often very difficult conversations and sometimes with people who don't have English or French as a first language uh, on the telephone and how yeah. to do that effectively. I mean, we've talked a lot about this, frankly, um, you and myself and Moya, since we, we went and did some site visits with uh, the IAD. We talked to a lot of staff and it was very obvious to us in every conversation that they're all very eager to help as much as possible to and do make, it better yeah yeah and to, yeah. to they really care they really genuinely care about these litigants and trying to help them through the process i really loved when paul talked about that justice is a service that mm. the system belongs to the people who are affected by it mm. And uh, a great concrete example of the way that they, they put that notion into practice is, I loved this, the title of their training module for, for members or uh, for panel members for the adjudicators. Yeah. yeah. That they call it, it's not about you. <laughs> <laughs> I really enjoyed yes. that. <laughs> I, I think that probably should be, you know, tacked onto training for every adjudicator and every court and tribunal uh, and lawyers for that matter. Gillian um, mm -hmm. Hadfield has talked about this as well, yeah. um, focusing on making the process meaningful for the people who come to it, not just satisfactory for the people who work in it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's so interesting, isn't it? Because we have data from our 2013 study, the, the one that I did originally um, from self-reps at tribunals, and they were only a small number. They were about 10%. And 
And I recall at the time so many people telling me uh, in academia, oh, you're going to see completely different results when you talk to self-reps in administrative tribunals. Well, I'm afraid, and this is old news now, but just to reiterate it, no, um, we saw exactly the same, you know, replicated experiences in terms of confusion, feeling intimidated, feeling lost amongst people who went to tribunals uh, as those who went to court. So, you know, really there isn't that much difference here and we are very excited at NSRLP to be working in such a concrete way. Um, and I think you're gonna say something in a minute, Dana, yeah. about our work with the Social Security Tribunal, working in such a concrete way to try to match some of this you know, energy that we're seeing there to make the system better and make it work for the users with what's actually going on on the ground. And yeah, as you say, we, we've kind of previously done the work with the IAD. We're now about to do something fairly similar with the Social Security Tribunal. And right. we want to use this opportunity and this platform to put out a little bit of a call. If any of our listeners uh, have represented themselves and you don't need to have represented yourself at the social security tribunal obviously that would be a bonus if you have and you want to participate we'd love to hear it but but anyone yeah anyone who has represented themselves either at a tribunal or in a court family court civil court whatever if you're interested in participating uh, we're going to be doing focus groups and we're also going to be doing a materials review so looking at a lot of the documents that the SST um, puts on their website or sends to litigants in the goal of improving those materials to make them more accessible, more readable, more understandable. So if you're interested, let us know this month, February, uh, we're going to be working on this very soon and we'll be scheduling those focus groups. So you can reach out to us at representingyourself at gmail.com and let us know if you're interested in participating. In other news, welcome back to the another news segment of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. For any new listeners, this segment is all about summarizing news stories in the world of access to justice. Last time, in our first episode of the season, we recapped some of the big access to justice stories from the past couple of months. This time, there were enough things happening in just the past couple of weeks. For our first news story, British Columbia had its Access to Justice Week from January 24th to 30th. They had some productive conversations, interesting guest lectures, and a statement by BC's Attorney General David Eby, who was actually a guest on this podcast back in 2019. For new listeners, we'll link to that episode alongside the list of news stories. In his statement, the Attorney General summarized some of the big changes that BC has implemented, both during and prior to the pandemic including new technologies, court transformations, virtual filings, legal aid funding, a new family law early resolution and case management model, progress on their commitment to address the overrepresentation of Indigenous peoples in the criminal justice system, and the creation of three Indigenous justice centers. We've linked the full statement for you to read. On a related note, Another news story out of BC is that Access to Justice BC, a network of government and non-government organizations committed to improving access in the civil and family justice system, revealed details of its Transform the Family Justice System collaborative on January 25th. A to JBC has posted three videos, which look at the reasons why the family justice system needs to be transformed, 
indigenous perspectives on family justice, and the perspective of a self-represented litigant on her experiences with the system. We've linked to an article by The Lawyers Daily which provides more information and links to the videos. Definitely check them out. For our next news story, on the East Coast, Nova Scotia launched a task force to improve access to justice after COVID-19. The task force will explore more ways to use technology to improve access to justice, increase efficiencies, and create better outcomes. The Nova Scotia Department of Justice and the Judiciary are leading the task force to create a roadmap to digitally transform the courts of Nova Scotia. Based on the press release, it doesn't seem that the task force includes members of the public, who are ultimately the users of the justice system, but this might still be an exciting step forward to improve access to justice. It'll definitely be interesting to see how the task force moves forward, and if their findings might result in changes that could be implemented in other provinces too. Next up, you might recall in our previous episode that I discussed an article by former Chief Justice Beverly McLaughlin titled, quote, Will COVID-19 Justice Become the Norm? Unquote, where she wrote about how the justice system might unfold during and after the recovery effort and discussed the idea of justice debt. The former Chief Justice wrote another interesting piece titled, quote, Access to Justice, Fragility and Resilience, Lessons of 2020 and 2021 Potential, unquote. The article summarizes some key lessons, and all SRLs, advocates, and legal professionals might enjoy some of the takeaways. Importantly, she notes, quote, The pandemic revealed the cracks in our justice system, forcing a reckoning with our approaches to serving the fundamental principles of justice, and to ensuring that justice can be accessed by everyone, unquote. As we continue to navigate this pandemic, it's certainly important to think about what we want our systems to look like going forward. For our last update, NSRLP is looking for current or past SRLs across Canada for a public input project. The Social Security Tribunal of Canada, SST, is an independent administrative tribunal that makes judicial decisions on appeals about employment insurance benefits, old age security payments, and retirement pensions, the Canada Pension Plan. They're in the process of creating plain language materials, and SRLs can provide input on whether or not this initiative is effective and how easy or difficult it is to understand the SST forms, letters, and other tribunal documents. Participants will be eligible to receive a gift card for their time. If interested, check out the NSRLP website for more info and email representingyourself at gmail.com. That's it for this episode of Jumping Off the Ivory Tower. Join us next episode for another thought-provoking conversation.